Chapter Seventeen of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Seventeen. What people said. Sir Joseph was pleased with Lord Penrith's quiet manner both in advancing his own claims and in receiving that frank confession of past error there was some touch of comfort for the sinner in penrith's tranquil acceptance of the story as a mere matter of course an incident likely enough to happen in every man's life he himself had been inclined to take a tragical view of the old story and to recognize the scourge of the furies in those sharp strokes with which fate had dealt him first george arnold's suicide for which he had never doubted that the drunken husband had flung away his life in a fit of jealous rage then lady lucy's death by an accident so common but a blow so crushing to the man who adored her and last and most terrible the murder of his unacknowledged daughter a remorseful conscience perceived in these calamities the judgment of an offended heaven it was a comfort therefore to talk to a man of penrith's advanced school who did not believe in angels avenging or otherwise and who looked upon man as the creature of circumstances and environment sir joseph wanted to see his daughter married settlements made his colossal fortune secured so far as legal defences can secure wealth against the weakness or the folly of a wife or the dishonesty of a husband the thought that this splendid fortune could be scattered and wasted was madness this fortune which had grown under his care from the first earnings of the peasant lad to the wealth of the man who owned property of almost every shape and form stretching from mines and smelting works close at hand to the furthest limits of mining enterprises in america and australia it would be a grand thing to see his daughter a countess with an impregnable marriage settlement the conviction that his working day was nearly done had been growing upon him ever since marie's death he felt the shadows darkening round him he had worked his brain with relentless activity and of late there had been moments of trouble and confusion the vain effort to recall a familiar name the sudden clouding of ideas which indicated that the fibres were wearing thin and that the final obscuration the fall of the curtain might come suddenly he was inclined therefore to assist penrith's suit with all his paternal influence why should not sibyl like this aristocratic suitor he had all the markings of an ancient race in the refined features and slender yet athletic form the small hand and tapering fingers the narrow arched foot a true norman type with its suggestions of more distant ancestors in the dim remoteness of centuries before the conquest the difference in their ages was considerable the girl only eighteen the man between thirty and forty arrived at an age when a man begins to feel that the glory and freshness of youth have departed and that he is nearing the crest of the hill the other side of which is all downward travelling 
but this seniority should only lend dignity to his suit it ought to be more gratifying to a girl's pride to be admired and esteemed by a man of penrith's age an intellectual weight than to be worshipped by a stripling fresh from christ's church or sandhurst it was a bitter disappointment to sir joseph when after confiding penrith's hopes and his own views to sibyl he was met by a deliberate refusal i don't think i shall ever marry she said at any rate there is nothing further from my thoughts at present i want to stay with you dear father always always may not mean very long sir joseph muttered moodily and then he strongly urged the advantages of a marriage with penrith an old peerage an estate adjoining that which she was to inherit a castle that had stood like a rock against the assaults of scottish freebooters in the day when it was a perilous thing to live on the marches for dignity for historic interest there could be hardly a finer match sir joseph grew angry as he noted sibyl's scornful lip and resolute eye do you want to marry a duke he exclaimed is that why you turn up your nose at an offer most girls would snap at i don't want to marry at all father no not this year but next year you will be in london surrounded by adventurers and first fortune-hunting scamp rakel or gambler who takes your fancy will have a better chance than penrith with his thirty thousand acres and ancient name i am not afraid of fortune-hunters very likely not but i am don't take me to london then next year or any other year i don't care for society father i am as happy as i ever can be here with you sybil that's all very well but it can't last i'm an old man and our parting our last parting my dear may come sooner than you expect you think it nothing to give up society and all the pleasures to which my daughter has a right but that's only because you don't know what the great world is like you've heard it abused the pleasures called dead sea fruit that's all nonsense it's a very pleasant world for youth and wealth whatever it may be for the worn-out and the needy no doubt they taste the dust and ashes but the fruit will be fresh and sweet to your lip you must take your position in society next season sibyl married or unmarried your aunt selina would not hear of your presentation being delayed after your nineteenth birthday sibyl did not dispute this point but she was firm in her refusal of lord penrith he was to come to ellerslie in a few days to hear her verdict he had begged that she might not be hurried in her decision he wished that she should have ample time to consider the manifold advantages she he had to offer he would have been cut to the quick had he had known with what indifference sibyl contemplated his offer and that the only words of her father's that had touched her feelings had been his gloomy foreshadowings of his own death her thoughts were full of sadness as she walked up and down the terrace where only a few months ago she had been so light-hearted and happy 
it was still early in september and autumn had scarcely touched the foliage in park or woods only september and she remembered herself as she had been last spring when the leaves on yonder plane tree were unfolding while the beech buds were still purple how happy how thoughtless she had been in those lengthening april days amused with the various trifles and now it seemed to her as if life were one load of care look where she would the horizon was dark she had lived almost in seclusion since her return from the continent the few cottagers fisher families at ardliston pitman's families nearer home whom she had visited had received her as she thought somewhat ungraciously there was a change of some kind a want of cordiality they had answered all her questionings as to their own welfare and had accepted her gifts with a certain sullenness she had avoided susan kettering shuddering at the memory of the widow's frantic vehemence on the day of mourning but two or three days after penrith's second visit to ellerslie she called on mrs kettering's aunt the widow garforth and again offered to help the orphan children the aunt declined all help in the niece's name it's poor susan's whim to do without your help miss she said and she must have her own way she's just a heart-broken creature and right or wrong she lays her grief at your door and she says she'd rather see those children starve than touch a sixpence of your money they needn't starve anyway poor bairns for susan can earn a little with charring she's been working up at the arms four days a week and there's others aunts and uncles to help a bit so there's no call for you to take it to heart miss whatever folks may say i care nothing what people say sibyl answered haughtily i only want to help those poor children i cannot be in the slightest measure responsible for their father's death he was asked to take out his boat and offered a price for his night's work he was free to refuse if he saw any risk of course he was miss everybody can see that except susan she raves about the money that tempted him your money i don't believe he ever had the chance of earning so much in all his life till that night he refused at first then yes poor fellow he saw there was dirty weather coming he didn't make mean to make his boat out to that tide but it was a heap of money to earn in a single night and mr urquhart put it to him it would be the making of his fortune and it might save mr mountford from the gallows and when susan heard of the money she begged him to go that's what preys upon her mind miss but she has no call to lay the blame at your door and set people talking those phrases of mrs garford's about what people said haunted sibyl's memory with uncomfortable persistency what should people say to her discredit and what reason had she to be ashamed 
even if all that could be known about that dreadful night were known to the little world of Ellerslie and Ardliston. She could understand that the widow might be blindly resentful, but what right had other people to blame her? There was no act of hers upon that night of which she felt ashamed, for the violation of the law at which she had assisted did not trouble her conscience. She saw no more shame in that than the lion-hearted Winifred Nithsdale could have seen in the trick that saved her husband's head from the block. What could people say? The neighbors of Ellerslie were of the fewest, for, except Killander Castle, there was no country seat within a radius of ten miles, the greater part of the land within that radius being owned by Lord Penrith and Sir Joseph Higginson, a retired colonel of Highland Regiment with his wife and daughters, and an evangelical vicar and his wife, both middle-aged people, were Sybil's only genteel neighbors within walking distance, and these two families provided enough gentility to keep a whole parish going. What could people say? Sybil asked herself, with troubled brow as she paced the terrace where so much of her life was spent in fine weather, while the horses were idle in the stable and the boats lay unused in the boathouse by the river, that river which she had never willingly looked upon since Marie Arnold's death. What could people say? She remembered now a certain touch of patronage in the manner of Mrs. Denton, the vicar's wife, a sort of poor dear air, a soothing look and tone which seemed to say, I shall always be your friend, however other people may treat you. She had thought nothing of that indefinite change at the time, too weary of mind and heart to be on the alert for shades of meaning in Mrs. Denton's local twaddle. But now, recalling that last tea-drinking, she remembered that there had been a change. Those fulsome flatteries which had implied that Sir Joseph's daughter was only a little lower than the angels, had given place to a pitying tenderness of tone, insufferable to think of now that she had taken the trouble to recall it. She remembered, too, that there had been a shade of coldness in Mrs. MacFarlane's manner. When they met in a pitman's cottage, the elder lady distributing tracts and good advice, the younger orders for soup and wine. She remembered that the MacFarlanes, who had always been precise to persnicketiness in the interchange of afternoon calls, had not called at Ellerslie since her return from Schwalbach. Sybil had not noticed the omission until now, thankful to be left in her melancholy solitude, but now it seemed to her that her neighbors had been purposely distant. She went to the terrace to the drawing-room, where an open piano and a volume of Beethoven offered that form of consolation which always soothed her nerves and lifted her soul out of the abyss of gloom. But today even music seemed to have lost some of its power. She played the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata, and then rose and moved slowly about the room, looking at the pictures at the walls, the marble heavy, coldly white, against a background of tall palms, 
the tables loaded with bric-a-brac the valuable books piled carelessly on other tables books that had been chosen mostly for her sake sir joseph ordering any new book or new edition which he thought might please his daughter how splendid it all was but how lonely sir joseph lived chiefly in his own rooms seeing no one but andrew orlebar and only joining his daughter at dinner and after dinner when he would ask her to play to him and sit in melancholy silence while she played miss minchin had gone home to her invalid mother lady selina was in scotland with the brymars but was to arrive at ellerslie early in october and take up her position officially as miss higginson's chaperone till she could be released from that grave duty by miss higginson's marriage sir joseph had contrived to convey to her mind that as she could not presume to offer stipend or pecuniary consideration of any sort to a woman of lady selina's social standing her kindness to her niece would be substantially remembered in his will on which his sister-in-law had assured him firstly that she hoped that he would outlive her and secondly that she existed only to be useful to her people and thirdly that any little legacy he might be generous enough to bequeath to her would be a most welcome addition to her wretched income you know what a struggle it is for the unmarried daughters of a poor nobleman to live like ladies said lady selina the wonder is, is that they manage to live at all sir joseph further conveyed to his sister-in-law that the frocks and millinery which she would require during sibyl's first season were to be included in sibyl's bills you are too good my dear joseph you won't find me extravagant one or two walking-gowns my court-gown and a satin frock or two with my own lace for dances will carry me through the season i won't ruin you everything had been settled therefore and in the meantime sibyl who dreaded her aunt's frivolous loquacity had been thankful to be alone till to-day there had been no oppression in the sense of solitude only an immense relief but now by this new light suggested by mrs garforth's tactless speech the solitude galled was she sibyl higginson who from her babyhood had been accustomed to the adulation of everybody about her and had grown unconsciously without any lessening of her generous impulse and sympathy with others to regard herself in some sort of personage was she to be patronized by a vicar's wife and cut by a half-pay colonel in his family the thought was intolerable the impetuous blood of youth mounted to the fair te temples and when a servant threw open the drawing-room door and announced mr urquhart sibyl hardly waited for the door to be shut before she turned to the visitor with indignant vehemence and exclaimed did you know this mr urquhart have you known all along of the cruel things people have been saying about me here in this place where they have known me since i was a little child she burst into tears 
the first she had shed since the interview with mrs garforth they were tears of anger rather than of sorrow bewildered for the moment by this outburst urquhart gently questioned the indignant girl and drew from her all the story of susan kettering's insolence and mrs garforth's hints of scandal and of mrs denton's compassionate airs and mrs macfarlane's coldness hubert urquhart was essentially an opportunist quick to profit by a crisis that could be turned to his own advantage and in sibyl's wounded feelings he saw a golden opportunity for the ripening of his own schemes until penrith's appearance on the scene he had meant to take things very quietly to wait and watch with the patience of bruce's proverbial spider his faith had been large in the opportunities that time always brings but penrith's rivalry altered the whole aspect of the case and his only chance of success was a coup de main my dear sibyl i am sure you have have too an enlightened a mind to be distressed by village gossip he began deprecatingly they have talked about me then of course they have talked people talked about joan of arc and there were slanders about charlotte corday nothing romantic or heroic can escape being talked about your visit to the lock-up and your help in mountford's escape got known somehow and naturally people have talked there's not much to be said no ground for scandal but the people in the country places have a way of saying things miss higginson must have been very attached to mr mountford before she could take such a step and then they go harping on about your attachment and weaving a web of lies round a small nucleus of truth until the thing grows into a scandal and mothers shake their heads and say they would not like their daughters to behave as miss higginson behaved and fathers say that brandon mountford was a scoundrel and stories so circumstantial as to seem true are told of sir joseph's anger and your tears and speeches that were never spoken are quoted and commented upon there is nothing that grows so quickly as a scandal there needs but a grain of seed to produce a mighty tree and all the carrion crows of the neighborhood flap their wings and croak and scream among its branches but what need you care you know the purity of your own motives yes i know my own motives and his noble character but it is too cruel that he should be maligned i can answer to my god for what i did if i broke the law it's hardly much the branch of law these people talk about as a departure from the conventional rules that hedge around a young lady in your position forgive me if i wound you by repeating their malicious speeches the running after your lover he tried to put as much unpleasant emphasis on that last word as it would carry but to sibyl's innocence the word meant very little she understood however that unkind things had been said unkind to him whose fate she knew not and whose memory she fondly cherished sibyl there is one and only one way of cutting through the web that entangles you 
the quickest simplest way he said eagerly drawing nearer to her with a sudden fire in his cold hard face taking her hand in both his own give me the right to defend your reputation i was with you all through that night i can answer for the purity of your motives the generous impulse that urged you to depart from the beaten path of conduct no one will dare to speak ill of you when you have a husband to answer for you a husband familiar with your life from your childhood who knows it is spotless give me that right sibyl give me the reward of my patient love no 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 not for the world she said passionately how can you dream of such a thing knowing what you know do you think i am so fickle or so weak you know i loved brandon mountford and that it was only his sad affliction that forbade our being engaged lovers the past is the past you can never marry mountford dead or living he is lost to you but marriage is your only escape from the scandal that has grown out of that fatal night sybil for your own sake i must be plain with you i know the world of which you know nothing know it too well and i know that the cloud which darkens your name in this place will follow you to london and that your first appearance in the great world will be overshadowed by that odious scandal vague from its very vagueness impossible to confute you cannot live down that scandal by yourself alone it will be the signal for the basest adventurers to hunt you as their destined prey no one but a husband a man of position can come between you and the venom of the place in which beauty and wealth are the chosen mark for malice is that so asked sibyl suddenly would these people be sorry for their unkindness if i were to marry a man of position in their paltry world a man of rank assuredly they would said urquhart his face lighting triumphantly she had wrenched her hand from his and in this moment of fancied success he tried again to seize it tried to draw her to his breast fully believing that his cause was won won much more easily than he had hoped even when resolved in trying to take her by storm she repulsed him angrily her face was flushed her eyes flamed she ran to the hall and held the button down till a footman appeared was that lord penrith's phaeton which drove past the window half an hour ago she asked yes ma'am his lordship is with sir joseph in the study ask him to come to me here directly sir joseph ma'am no lord penrith what do you want with my brother asked urtcart when the man was gone you shall hear sibyl was walking about the room her heart beating violently her breath quickened her hands clasped tightly together on in the agony of a desperate determination she was at the age when the happiness of a lifetime is sometimes hazarded upon the impulse of a moment the age of sudden resolve and reckless action wounded pride had mastered every other feeling 
Penrith appeared, pale, grave, prepared for a serious interview, but in no wise prepared for his brother's presence. He gave Urquhart a curt nod as he approached Sibyl. Their hands met, and he sat, looking at her, surprised at the crimson flush on her cheek and the angry light in her eyes. "'You sent for me, and I came with delight,' he said gently. "'I'm sure you know how eager I am to see you, but you look distressed. I fear there is something the matter.' He turned from Sybil to Hubert questioningly. "'Lord Penrith!' My father told me a few days ago that you wished me to be your wife. Do you still wish it? Still, always, with my whole heart. But perhaps you don't know that people in this neighborhood have said unkind things about me because I helped Mr. Mountford to escape, convinced that he was innocent of poor Marie's death. I've heard nothing. If I did hear, well... I should let people know of my opinion of them for daring to speak unkindly of you. But you know I broke the law in helping Mr. Mountford to escape, that I provided the money which tempted the owner of the Mary Jane to risk his life. The boat was lost with all on board. They say at Ardliston that those lives lie at my door she clasped her hands before her face to hide the tears that rushed to her eyes at that thought. I know that you can have done nothing that was not noble and high-minded. I loved him, faltered Sybil. I am not ashamed of my love, even now. I can never care for anyone on this earth as I cared for him. But if— she continued, dashing away her tears and confronting Penrith with a resolute look. If, knowing this, which I have told you in the presence of your brother, who was with me and acted for me on that fatal night, if, knowing this, Lord Penrith, if you still wish to take me for your wife, still wish, earnestly, passionately, cried Penrith, seizing her hands and trying to draw her to his breast, there was triumph, ecstasy almost, in his face and voice, if not the ring of real passion, to have won her, to have won beauty, youth, and fortune so easily, was more than he had hoped. He flashed an, an exultant glance at his brother as he put his arm around Sybil's waist. "'My love, my wife,' he cried, Life has nothing left to give me more than this. Hubert Urquhart had been standing a little way off, with his back to a wide window, a window with plate-glass doors opening on to the terrace, a window which gave light and brightness and air and egress and ingress, but which every ascetically-minded visitor at Ellerslie condemned as an error in taste. Standing with his back to that flood of light, Urquhart's face had been in the dense shadow, and neither the diabolical scowl nor the livid hue of his countenance as he witnessed this impromptu betrothal had been noticed by his brother or Sybil. Both were startled by the venom 
which hissed from his lips in a burst of ironical felicitation. "'I congratulate you, Miss Higginson, on a coup de théâtre that would have done honour to Rachel in her zenith, a dramatic situation more daring than anything Sardon has ever attempted. You wanted a husband to patch up your damaged res reputation.' that fact was clear to me just now when i offered you my unworthy self and a younger brother's modest status but you are more ambitious than i thought you i did not know that you wanted to repair your blemished character with the prestige that hangs about an earl's coronet that you counted upon buying a title with a million or so which your worthy coal-mining iron-founding muddy-grubbing father is ready to give as a solution to the husband who is willing to marry some word followed only half pronounced between clenched teeth only the beginning of some infamous word no syllable of which ever reached sibyl's ear and which ended in a crash of plate glass that rang through ellerslie house and brought master and servants indoor and out of door hurrying to the scene happily for hubert urquhart and perhaps still more happily for lord penrith the heavy glass doors were standing ajar with one blow impelled by passion too strong for speech the elder brother hurled the younger backwards to the parting casements and on to the terrace outside it was the shock of the doors flying asunder as urquhart fell between them which had shattered the two tall panels of glass and sent a shower of splinters flashing and sparkling in the sunlight the flush of anger had faded from penrith's forehead by the time sir joseph entered the room and he met the baronet's eager questioning with perfect self-possession i am sorry i lost my temper and broke your window he said but if a scoundrel insults the woman one loves or indeed any woman what can one do but knock him down and mr urquhart happened to be standing in front of your window pray don't be distressed sibyl you will never again be subjected to my brother's brutality for he shall never enter any house of mine, and I'm sure your father will have nothing more to do with him. "'What has he done? What has he said?' asked Sir Joseph, bewildered and alarmed. "'Nothing worth talking about. Only an explosion of malevolence. He wanted to marry Miss Higginson, and behaved like a lunatic.' when he heard her promise to be my wife what has she promised i am proud to say she has answered penrith taking sibyl's hand thank god said sibyl's father while this brief conversation was proceeding hubert urquhart was lying on his back upon the gravel walk outside unconscious of surrounding things Dr. Dewsnap, who looked to his injuries half an hour later, was able to assure Sir Joseph that, although his patient was 
suffering from slight concussion of the brain, and was somewhat shaken and bruised by the fall, he would most likely be quite well in a few days. End of chapter 17